The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more, visit queenspodcastlab.org. This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queen's College in the City University of New York. Today, we speak with Michelle Jackson from Stanford University. She recently authored Manifesto for a Dream, Inequality, Constraint, and Radical Reform with Stanford University Press. In it, she argues that we will never make strides towards equality if we do not start to think radically. So today, a plea for a more radical sociology, Michelle Jackson, coming up next. First of all, let's begin by welcoming special co-host, I'd say lead host today, Dan Morrison. Dan, great to see you again. Good to see you, Joe. Always happy to be on the podcast. Oh, it's great to have you. Uh, so, Dan, do you want to set us up? This was your brainchild, and it's a really good one. Yeah, well, I mean, those of you who follow uh, Joe, you know, may know that sometimes I chime in on the things he writes on Twitter, and I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm also I also teach a lot here at Abilene Christian University, and so I'm always looking for new ideas, uh, new ways to approach uh, the courses I teach. This fall, I taught a course on inequality and social justice. Somehow, I got connected with Michelle and, and her her Twitter feed, and this book came up, and I think I wrote back to her and I said this is it. I've got to change this class because we're so often in this class, at least for me, focused on all of the problems, all of the the ways that our society is uh, harming, harming folks, whether along race, class, gender, and of course, the intersections of those. And so, you know, this book, the title of it is super intriguing and made me want to, to dig in. And Michelle was kind enough to share her work with me. And, and I'm just, I'm thinking about ways to help students think their way through these issues and provide some really concrete ways to help, right? And what are the what are the solution-oriented things? You know, we have courses in social problems. I want to think about social solutions. And so Michelle's book really helps with that. So thanks, Michelle. And I want to welcome Michelle Jackson from Stanford University, who's written this, this great book, Manifesto for a Dream. Now, Michelle, you argue that sociologists need to start thinking radically if we're going to tackle the very serious social problems and social inequities we have in our society. What did you mean by radical thinking? So the idea of radical reform is to say that we need reform that is really going to address the roots of inequality. So this is a definition of radicalism that comes actually directly from Marx. He talks about being radical is to attack the roots of inequality. And so that was really where I started off. And in thinking about writing a book about policy and about more kind of bold reforms, as it were, you really have to decide, well, what are the roots of inequality? What is it that I want to tackle and, and how a policy is going to affect that change? And so my definition of radical was that it focuses on all of the institutions that are implicated in producing inequality. And if you think about where inequality comes from, every single social institution is implicated. And then you have to start thinking about the interconnections among those institutions as well. And so thinking about radical policy, you want to think about policies that are going to affect not just individual institutions, but this whole constellation of social institutions surrounding individuals, and then the unequal experience that different types of individuals have with those institutions. So in thinking about radical policy, I'm not just saying it needs to be big or it needs to be expensive or 
it needs to be, you know, all encompassing or, you know, any type of definition you may take of radicalism. Um, I was being very specific, actually, in terms of the types of policies that we might need to address inequality. And actually, this was one of the one of the challenges of the book, because when I started off writing this book, I knew I wanted to write something about policy that would be different from the sorts of books that we normally get about policy. I knew I wanted to suggest that we would, would do something a bit bolder than we have done in the past. But I had not quite appreciated that in order to decide what it was that I was going to propose, I would need to come up with really kind of different definition of where inequality comes from and then how we might go go ahead and tackle it. All right, that that's great. I am really interested in how your version or your explanation of inequality does differ from some of the previous treatments. And, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about how sociology and our interventions in, in inequitable institutions are, you know, are siloed or are not as radical as they as they need to be. So I, I apologize, that's two questions, but say more about that if you would. Sure. So, I mean, on the first question of, you know, sociologists have said an awful lot about inequality. I think that is an absolutely fair observation. And I think one could easily come to the conclusion that anything interesting has already been said. And it's possibly, you know, it's possible that that's true. Uh, I do, though, think there's room for us, though, to talk about how societies have changed, uh, how beliefs about inequality have changed, um, how social forces have continued to operate that we actually perhaps have not appreciated in full. So if we think in the inequality world, we've definitely focused on this increase in income inequality. I mean, that is certainly a known fact. It's something that we worry about. It's something that we talk about all the time. I think one thing that we have not focused on to quite the same degree is this increase in differentiation of institutional functions. So it used to be the case, of course, that everything was contained in the family. And over time, we've had this differentiation into a lot of specialized institutions. That's something that would be barely discussed in inequality research today. Um, of course, there's some discussion and it comes up in discussion of you know, particular specialized institutions, but we don't think about that force as being a generalized force affecting inequality over time. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is actually how important that differentiation may be for our current understanding of inequality and in thinking about how to reduce inequality. So in terms of, you know, where does this stand with respect to, say, classical literature on inequality that we're all very familiar with? I'm not suggesting that that literature is wrong. I'm suggesting actually that society may have changed and there are some things that we should be focusing on that we're just kind of we're ignoring maybe because we have got so used to thinking about these traditional forces and these traditional literatures. So I would say that that's one of the things that the book offers that is kind of a, di a bit different from the previous literature on inequality. I don't remember what your second question was. <laughs> the second question is is uh, related to that in terms of how most scholars of inequality focus on one institution and show how inequality works in that system, how it's reproduced, you know, right. what the main drivers are, and so what the mechanisms are, and so forth. And I think your book takes a different tack on that related to what you were saying in terms of the differentiation of institutions and their, uh, you know, in, the, in their functions. Um, that's that's more acute today than it was in previous eras. So, yeah, reflect if you would then on the role of institutions in inequality, but also 
how your work adds to our understanding of the connections between and among institutions. So we, of course, have huge literatures on, I mean, basically any social institution you could think about. So we have a very big literature on health and inequality and how the healthcare system produces inequalities and how the healthcare system failed to reduce inequality and so on. We have the same thing for education. We have the same thing for law and order and so on. So you can think of all of this constellation of institutions and each one has a literature explaining how inequalities are reproduced within that institution. Part of the reason for that is that, of course, there's academic specialization. So we we don't just look at a single institution. We often are looking at a very small part of a single institution. So that academic specialization has continued apace. And, you know, I think arguably sociologists now are far more specialized than they used to be, you know, let's say 100 years ago. So we have these specialized literatures. There has started to be some interest in thinking now about how these institutions are connected. So you can think about lots of the literature on incarceration, for example, talking about the effects of, say, the incarceration of a parent on child's educational attainment. That would be an example of of thinking about how inequalities in one institution may be linked to intergenerational inequalities in another. I'm suggesting that we need much more of that. We need much more of the literature that focuses on these interconnections among these different institutions, and ideally from the perspective of the child going through them. So if we think from the perspective of a child and the process of moving from childhood to adulthood, think of this entire constellation of institutions that needs to be connected together in order for that child to do well. And to give an example, you could think about a child who ends up being sick. Now what happens to their schooling? So in the case of privileged families, what happens is that you get a note from the doctor to explain to the school why you're not doing well. You get special accommodations uh, in tests, for example, so that you get extra time. And those accommodations are going to mean that anything that happens in the health domain shouldn't then have a negative impact on what happens in the education domain. And I think that as societies become more specialized, become more differentiated, and we have ever more of these very specialized institutions surrounding children, it's become ever more important to kind of hook them back up in order for the child to do well. So just to get a sense of my grasp of what you mean by radical, By radical, do you mean that we have to change a large number of institutions to, you know, cure whatever social problems, you know, are plaguing us? So, like, radicalism in your sort of vantage point means, like, wide-ranging change. Is that, like, that occurs across multiple domains? Is that what you mean? It means change, yes, that would occur across multiple domains and also focuses on these interconnections. So it's not just that we treat each domain as an isolated institution and we try and apply policies within that very specialized domain. We say we may need to do that, but we also need to focus on the links among these different institutions. And when I focus on some of the examples of radical reform in the fourth chapter, All of those are trying to think of ways to link up institutions for less privileged people in the same way as privileged people are already doing. I mean, let's Mm. be clear that this this is not a problem that privileged people are facing to the same degree. So can you give us another example of something from Chapter 4, like a multi-domain 
change to tackle a social problem? So one of the examples that I use is the example of the post-war welfare state in the United Kingdom. I mean, just completely randomly chosen, of course. So this was a reform that aimed to change lots of institutional domains at the same time. So the the post-war Labour government had recognised that in order for a child to do well, they had to be supported in education, they had to be supported in healthcare and in other domains too, like housing, for example. Uh, they also focused on pensions and unemployment benefits. So they talk about these five different areas as being very important in terms of supporting both children and adults, actually. So that would be an example of trying to intervene in multiple domains at the same time. And there was less focus on linking of those institutions. But of course, at that point in time, there was also less specialization. So I think there was less requirement actually to focus on those connections among institutions. But their strong belief was that if they were able to fix all of these institutions at the same time, that was going to be something that was very important. And they explicitly talk about how it is that if you're not healthy, you're not going to do well in the economy, you're not going to do well in education and so on. So it was a very thoughtful approach to inequality that was not just saying, okay, we'll fix education and hope that that does the job. It was definitely this idea that people are far more than their education. People are more than their health. And if you're not going to think of a person as being this rounded whole and being a consequence of all of these different institutions, then you're not going to do well in reducing inequality. That would be one example. Michelle, I mean, I was really struck by this part of of your book, where, as you say, there's a more holistic, uh, interconnected set of institutions that the UK government had established in the post-war period. You know, I I guess I'm made more parochial in my interest in America and the United States sociology. Why do you think we're so stuck in our interventions or in our suggestions in incrementalism? I mean, why haven't sociologists in the United States done enough to to push for a radical reform that is that does have this feature of interconnectedness that you're talking about? So I think the one important thing to say here is that it's not just sociologists who are engaged in policy reform. And indeed, I mean, sociologists are much less well represented in policy discussions in the US than certainly economists. Um, so I would say that one of our One of our discipline's great advantages is that we have a different way of seeing society than other disciplines. And part of the reason actually for writing the book was to say, we have something to say here. We have a unique perspective. We think about the world differently. And that helps us actually when you want to try and think about policies that could reduce inequality. So, yeah, the first thing to say is that I don't think it's you know, we should just blame sociologists for this. You know, we have got into this position. It, it's many social sciences have been contributing to this and perhaps particularly economics. So that's part of the explanation for it. I would say that insofar as people are engaged in policy, there are a set of different reasons that then make them less likely to want to propose radical reforms. So one is entirely pragmatic. It's this idea that you're not going to be able to get radical reforms. And so if you want to have any effect at all, let's just propose a smaller policy because there's a chance that that might work out. And ultimately, social scientists who are engaged in policy work are generally people who care about making lives better. 
and you know us kind of going on and saying well we just want we just want this big thing may lose us the possibility of having any effect at all and i think that we're very pragmatic about that and that leads us to these these smaller interventions i would say there's also been this uh a kind of more generalized push, though, to smaller interventions. You can think of the nudge literature as being an example of an extremely small intervention. And for that, I think you have to blame science a bit more. And so you have to think about the incentives that are at play within social science. So one of them is it's really relatively easy to carry out an experiment, to carry out a very small scale intervention that gives you a very neat finding. It's something that you can write up. You know, let's say you get a nice significant result. Now you can write it up. Now you go and send it to your top journal and boom, you know, you're through. That is an incentive that is not entirely driven, let's say, by the policy infrastructure. Now, of course, politicians love this because nudge interventions are super cheap. But we like it too. We're getting something out of it as well. And I think it's really important to emphasize that there, there's this trend in science towards specialization, towards writing very narrow papers that have some kind of big result that you can uh, trumpet. That's important too, and that's part of the reason, I think, why we've gone in this direction. There are other good scientific reasons, though. Uh, I think it's not all just, okay, this is a perversion of, of, of the process. One of those things, one of those reasons is that small-scale interventions are testable. Large-scale interventions are usually not and so for us to say, okay, you have to do something that's going to be really big and really expensive, that's not going to get published. That's going to be very hard to push for policymakers because we have no evidence that it will work. And actually, one of the notable things about the, the welfare state in uh, post-war Britain, of course, that wasn't tested. Of course, nobody you know, introduced all of these reforms at once to, to a small part of the population and said, okay, look, it works. We can do it. That relied on people being visionary, on social scientists saying, well, yeah, seems like it should work. And so that is a really important reason why we have been less keen to propose radical reform, because I think we're, we're pretty committed to the values of science, and that's not a bad thing. I think we have ideological reasons for not wanting to propose radical reform. And by ideological, I mean both political reasons, you know, that we may be committed to certain ideologies, but also actually an appreciation that other things are important. So if we value, say, familial autonomy, that might be a reason not to propose something more radical, which will inevitably take away some parental decisions. You know, that's that's a reasonable thing to value. We tend to think that families are a good thing. And so that means that certain types of reforms are automatically off the table. And, you know, the U.S. has traditionally valued things like freedom and liberty a great deal. And it would not be at all surprising if one of the reasons why U.S. social scientists are not proposing more radical uh, reforms is that's because they have a commitment to this liberty that is at the heart of the country. And then I do give a fourth reason in the book, actually, that is self-interest. I mean, ultimately, professors are pretty well off relative to the general person in the population. Many professors have children who they want to do well. They don't necessarily want to see society upturned so that their children are not going to be able to recreate their class position. I think many professors are 
great resources into helping their children be well. And so I think we, we do have to put that on the table as well as a possible reason why we're not willing to think differently. You know, we're kind of used to our situation. We should recognize that we're situated in a particular type of society and a particular position within that society. And that has effects probably. So I think that makes a great deal of sense, Michelle. One of the things that you talk about in the book that is a, a reframing of how a lot of sociologists and others talk about this, this set of its complex of problems is most of, most of the time we talk about inequality of opportunity or we seek to in, enhance the, the amount of opportunity you know, disenfranchised or marginalized uh, young people have in, in uh, our society. But you're talking, you, you introduce a new concept, at least to me, inequality of constraints. So can you tell us how those things, how those things differ in your mind and, and what they might have to do with what you're just saying in terms of how more privileged uh, parents and more privileged communities try to support and ensure that their kids are successful in life uh, over and above other, other kids? Yeah, so I, I talk about the concept of inequality of opportunity and then suggest, yes, reframing it as this idea of inequality of constraints. And part of the reason for that is just strategic. So I think that the inequality of opportunity concept is so associated with a particular way of thinking that it's really difficult for us to think about it in a different way anymore. At heart, the concept of inequality of opportunity is a very radical concept. It is suggesting something that is quite radical but it has become defanged. So we, we don't see its radical intent anymore because it's far too familiar to us. It's just become rope for us to talk about inequality of opportunity and how where you start shouldn't affect where you end up. We've heard politicians say that a thousand times. So that is what the concept of inequality of opportunity represents to us now. It encourages this idea that we can we can very easily separate inequality of opportunity from inequality of condition. That is the idea that people can live in very different environments, and we're fine with that as, as long as you know those environments don't then affect where they end up. I think that's a, that's a big stretch to say that people's lives can be completely different from one another, and yet that's not going to have an effect on where they end up. And inequality of opportunity really encourages us to take that distinction very seriously. It also encourages us to focus on individuals. So think about individuals when we think about inequality of opportunity, like how are they going to do? It's also difficult because it's very difficult to operationalize. So what does it mean to say we've got inequality of opportunity? If I say the social mobility literature that I'm more familiar with, you if you have unequal social mobility, then that's going to be something that you're going to call inequality of opportunity. You could also call it uh, unequal social mobility for people with the same level of education. You could call it unequal social mobility for people with the same level of education and IQ plus effort. There are all these different definitions, and we don't know which of those represents inequality of opportunity. And I suggest that instead we should be focused much more on the constraints side of things. So I wanted to talk about inequality of constraints because I wanted to focus on the barriers. Again, if you take the perspective of a child moving through the system, what are the barriers to that child's success as we go through? And you can think about what we call inequality of opportunity as being the end result of inequality. 
they don't. That's the thing that's causing these unequal opportunities for children. And I think for that reason, it deserves to be recognized in our scientific language. And so that's why I, kind of, I want to move to this idea that constraints. Let's focus on the constraints. Let's try and measure those constraints. And once we have a good handle on that, that's going to help us when we want to try and reduce inequality. So maybe it would help here to have some examples of the constraints that you're that you're talking about. So Michelle, what what are the major constraints that you you think about when you're when you're talking about inequality of constraints for young people? Gosh, there's so many. Uh, so if you think about it from the perspective. I mean, let's say start off with an extremely young child, one a, a child that's just been born. So from the very moment that that child is born, their experiences of the world are going to differ depending on their social background. So if you think of a privileged child, they're going to be born into a hospital that's going to have, it's going to be a high quality hospital because the parents are going to have health insurance. The parents are going to have power and status and resources, and they're going to be able to talk to the medical staff in a way that people with less power and status and resources are going to be able to. They're probably going to experience different quality healthcare. They will certainly have had different prenatal conditions um, in terms of the nutrition and other environmental factors. So even at that very moment of birth, those two babies have had very different experiences so far, and they are already having a lot of different experiences at that moment of birth. And if you follow through, the baby goes home. So now the home is going to look very different. If it's a privileged person's home and if it's someone who's less privileged, they're going to be different communities. Again, the environmental the environmental factors will look very different. The home will look very different. Uh, it's safety, it's security. You trace up through childhood, you have the similar differences just all the time in every institution that the child is interacting with. Obviously, schools are one institution that children interact with very frequently. We know that children from less privileged families tend to go to less good schools. They tend to be less well-resourced. They often have, say, teachers moving around much more frequently. So that education part of it is a, a really fundamental part of the problem. You know, push up to older ages, and then you get other sorts of institutions being introduced. One is obviously law and order. Uh, less privileged people have a very different experience of uh, the institutions around law and order than more privileged people. And so I think it's really important, actually, for us always to do that exercise of saying, well, from the child's perspective, how different does life look on these two different paths? And that actually is one of the things that I would like people to take from the book, rather than us just thinking in these kind of very broad terms about, okay, well, there's educational inequality. Just say, okay, well, what does that experience look like from the perspective of the child? You know, use a bit of the shtayen, and I think we don't actually do that enough when we're, we're thinking about these very you know, kind of narrow areas of research that we're involved with. It calls to mind what you bring up in towards the tail end of the book in terms of systems thinking and how that kind of branch of social and economic analysis or that sort of tradition has been less prominent in, in more recent years, even at the same time as we have now quite a bit better data, right, and quite a bit better sources of information to make our understanding of those, of those systems, you know, more helpful in terms of the problems that you're, that you're discussing here. 
yeah, systems thinking, I think, is so important. And it's also one of the key contributions of sociology, and we should be proud of it. I think part of the problem for us is that systems thinking for us is very bound up with functionalism. And, you know, a lot of social theory that people have covered, you know, in undergrad and in their grad theory class, but maybe not thought about too much since then. It's become a bit discredited. You know, no one necessarily wants to stand up and say, yeah, I'm a functionalist these days. But that idea of thinking in systems is, and obviously it's very sociological. It is actually how people experience the world and it's how we see the world. And so I would like to see us inject a bit more systems thinking into our discipline again. It doesn't have to be functionalism, I should say that explicitly. But we are a social system. And actually, as we become more differentiated and specialized, it becomes even more important to think of us in terms of a system because that coordination becomes much more crucial. I think it's particularly important if you're a policymaker to think in terms of systems. And I should say that actually many people engaged in policies do think in terms of systems. Now, what they mean by systems is actually slightly different than what we mean by systems. So they often are thinking about, say, the child welfare system or the health system. And we tend to think about social institutions a little bit differently. But I think that that idea of thinking about, well, what can you do in each of these institutions and then how might you want to think about inter interconnections among them, that type of systems thinking is really key to policy. And we're just really good at that type of thinking. And, and I, I think that we should kind of embrace that as sociologists. So, Michelle, you describe privileged children as growing up in a cocoon-like total institution. And as someone who's read a lot of Goffman, I just I love that love that concept. You know, the, the fact that actually well-functioning and well-coordinated institutions, you know, guide children, they prevent them from falling too far. We sort of protect our privileged people like me, protect our kids in a, in a really inclusive way. There are downsides to that. I mean, can you talk, talk about that a little bit compared to, you know, children with uh, much less privilege? So there may be downsides to that type of coordination across these different institutions. And of course, people have this response to Leroux's work, for example, when, when we talk about this cultural concerted cultivation. So one downside of concerted cultivation, as it's emphasized, is this idea that uh, children don't get to be independent anymore. So they're not going to be able to be grown adults with the necessary level of independence and free choice and so on. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think there's, I think there's plenty of evidence that if you're privileged, you can kind of adapt the world to be as you want it to be. So, you know, we don't necessarily have to assume that actually the world is going to stay as it is as these, you know, concerted cultivation generations reach maturity and, and get the chance to shape the world as they'd like it to be. I guess I, I'm much less concerned about the disadvantages of the, the total institution environment for the privileged than I am for what's happening on the other side. And that is that highly differentiated set of institutions that they have to navigate. Now, maybe you say, okay, we cultivate some incredibly independent and resilient kids from less privileged backgrounds. But, you know, many of them are also then going to be living in poverty later, later on in their lives. And, and that's that's really a bad thing. And so although I do see downsides to that very privileged situation, I'm, I'm less worried about that side of things than I am the less privileged families, which maybe doesn't sound very charitable. But we do probably want to ask as a society whether 
whether that type of yeah highly coordinated environment is a very bad one. And you could think about this in terms of, say, adolescent development. So adolescent development is really important that adolescents test boundaries. This is one of the reasons why it's difficult to live with adolescents, because they, they need to test those boundaries. That's one of the things that you do to gain independence. Now, if they're not allowed to test those boundaries in the same way, if the world change, if the world changes, suddenly everything falls apart. And we've, we have now a new crisis. It's a very, very difficult time, and particularly for adolescents, I would say. Now, have we left those children without the skills that they would need to adapt to these crises? I think it's an interesting question about the long-run effects of COVID. You know, are we going to see long-lasting, say, anxiety, mental health problems among those cohorts that have not been allowed to gain their independence and test boundaries to, to the same extent? So there are possible long-term effects that we might want to worry about, and not having that resilience and flexibility may well be one of them. So a it's not that I don't think that that's an interesting question or anything that we should care about. I just think in relative terms, those children are doing pretty well as compared to the children who will end up in much worse situations of adults. So I want to tell you, first off, I, I am grateful that you've written a book that sort of keeps a very, very important debate, I think, alive in our discipline. Uh, you know, your take is very, very different from the point of departure of the, you know, the training that I received in my school. It's very different, <laughs> just suffice to say, from what we learned at Princeton, maybe unsurprisingly. But like, uh, there are a few reservations uh, that I have with this uh, perspective. And the first one is that a major reform it has like a, a goal underpinning it, right? That it, like to embark on a major or radical reform project, you have to have a vision and that vision is going to be value laden. And I understand like there, you know, I understand the merits of advocating for, you know, uh, the maximization of youth health or economic opportunity. But what do you say to people who believe that, you know, the purpose of society is to fulfill the will of God or the purpose of society is to ensure that everybody, every man for himself and everybody makes their own choices and nobody interferes. Like, how do we figure out what values to pursue when we're, you know, developing these these big projects? That's a great question. Yeah, I, I I am not necessarily saying that we should push forward with this agenda at all costs. I'm starting from the position that, okay, we say that this ideology of the American dream is really fundamental to what this country is all about. And if that's the case, let's start from that position and say, well, what would that take? So what would it take to deliver the American dream to everybody in this country. And incidentally, one of the things I talk about in the book is how this idea of American dream has changed over time. It used to very much focus on the constraints that children, well, that individuals in general were placed under in navigating the social world. It changed over time to be much more individualistic and focused on you know, an individual's success. And when I say it changed over time, it's relatively recent that this happened. So I don't think it can be kind of seen separately from, say, this trend towards neoliberalism and individualism that has, has really gone alongside, um, you know, the past century or so. 
even if you go back as, you know, just 100 years or so, the American dream meant something a bit different. And so that value is really very central to the book. So I feel like I'm saying, okay, we're, we're saying that this is what the society is. And so conditional on that, what then do you need to do to achieve it? Now, if, if your question is more about, well, how do you persuade those people? How do you persuade people who say, well, we should, we should be undertaking the will of God? Well, I mean, I think in that case, it, it comes down to kind of advertising and the sort of work that, you know, people are doing to say, well, how do you persuade people? Because I think there are ways of persuading people that this is very consistent with American values. I think the same would be true of something like freedom. I mean, how can you be free if you're in such unequal circumstances that, you know, you don't have the opportunities that others in more privileged circumstances have? I mean, that's that's a way of appealing to the value of freedom while at the same time saying, OK, it, it's related to inequality and maybe we need to do something about that, too. So I think that the kind of more pragmatic, well, how do you appeal to people with different values is more easily solved than the, the question of, well, should we have this value at all? Is this the thing we should care about? I think I, I understand you saying, like, if equality of opportunity is the goal, then we need systemic change. You're not, you know, and, and, and you're willing to make an argument for it. You're not saying it's the goal or that sociologists should all be looking towards a common radical form. I understand you to be saying this is a value, and to the extent that sociologists want to pursue it, we have to do that. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think one thing that troubles me a great deal is that we're just inconsistent at the moment. So we say that we're focused on this, this goal of equality of opportunity, and then we do all of these very incremental things. And I think that, first of all, that's just not that's not scientifically honest. And so I would like to see us just say, well, you know, actually our job is not to eliminate inequality of opportunity. What we actually care about is just having a bit of an effect on the margins. I mean, if we said that, then I think actually our entire policy infrastructure makes sense. If we said, well, we're doing it for entirely pragmatic reasons, you know, we'd like more, but we can't get more, that's also fine. But yeah, I, I get very troubled by this idea that we say, okay, that's the goal and that's what we're doing. And here's this tiny thing that can't possibly do that and us pushing that. And so partly I'd just like us to be more honest. I think we actually really undermine the science if we say, here are all the barriers, it's a really big problem and do this tiny thing. That's not scientifically honest. I think it's undermining and I think that we, we should stop doing that. Sometimes, though, but sometimes it's just really complicated, right? Like I know in the areas that I study in household finance, like the things that I'm certain of are very, very narrow. And I can speculate, but I'm not 100% sure, right? Like, for example, student debt forgiveness. Mm -hmm. That was something I remember we dealt with in Canada in the 1990s when tuition was $1,500 per person. It was it was a kind of a regressive redistribution. We immediately assumed that it was something that would help the poor. and We found out it was kind of helping wealthy people, heavy college subsidies. Like these are the types of surprises that, you know, you might not really find out unless you just really narrowly focus on an area and, and break it apart. And I don't know how possible it would be if, if too many people are thinking systemically. I would even say like, even like, let's say, a student came to me and said, how do I engage in this? I want to create a research program for radical reform. 
The advice that I would give them would be focus on meta-analyses, go through studies of narrow stuff, but somebody still has to do those narrow studies for that empirical agenda to come to fruition. So the, the, the need for, you know, the milk toast sort of descriptive narrow stuff, it plays an important function on some level, no? I, I completely agree. Yeah, I, I, I would not want to be taken to be saying that all of those studies are pointless. They're absolutely not. I mean, they're fundamental. Of course they are. Um, specialization has led us as scientists to develop these incredible literatures in incredibly narrow areas. But I mean, one thing we were talking about earlier is the fact that sociologists are all over the place. They don't know what people in even relatively close substantive fields are doing. I don't think that's great. I actually don't think it's necessarily good for our science because ideas that work well in one domain probably will work well in another. And it also it, it means that we don't have a good overview of everything that's happening in a society that is incredibly interconnected. And so that that specialization, although it's incredibly valuable in terms of the, the quality of science that we can do in narrow domains, it also has some costs. And what I'm asking is not that we give up on all of those narrow domains, but that we also focus a little bit on connecting across those domains. And we have some of that. I mean, I would say, you know, annual review of sociology, for example, is a place that tries to tie together literatures in narrow areas in a way that's readable to those people from different areas. And, and I think that's really important. But we might want to focus a little more on that within social science. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you that it would be a bad idea to give up on everything that we've achieved because it's an incredible achievement. I mean, if you... I saw that when I was writing this book, I read a lot of the literature from you know, a lot of different fields, and it, it's an incredible achievement. So yeah, I don't, I don't want to look like I'm diminishing that. But actually, one other thing I would say to your student is that we do have examples of academics working on more radical policy programs. And we think of those now as just being everyday programs. But they weren't always. So think about early childhood education and, and interventions. So that's a radical reform, as I, as I describe it, because it focuses on lots of different institutional domains at the same time. Of course, it was not a reform that was tested you know, well in advance. It, somebody came up with this idea. And then they said, OK, we should test whether this works. And we end up with you know, two or three very high quality studies that we still rely on now. And part of our problem is that we don't have the evidence base because we don't have people who are doing those studies in order that would then allow us to say, look, we have this entire evidence base for radical reform. And I think I just want a little bit more of a balance. So think about the universal basic income. This is a hugely popular policy and actually both on the left and the right wing of the political spectrum. That policy is based in or the empirical basis of that policy is the negative income tax experiments. Uh, inspired by Friedman, of course, so inspired by right-wing right policy, although many people wouldn't appreciate that given the current discussion. So we need some examples of these types of experiments and these types of radical thinking in order to move us forward as a discipline. So I don't want to give up on specialization. I just want a bit of this stuff too. And, and for us to think about ways that we can test it on a smaller scale that will then allow people to take that and run with it. 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned testing, uh, Michelle, because there is the the question when do when people do propose like more radical reforms of unintended consequences and how do we iterate these kinds of things so that we don't sort of unleash something that we really really don't want, especially when we're thinking about interconnected systems and you know the ways that people's fates are linked through those interconnections. Yeah. What would you say to someone who's skeptical on the unintended consequences bit? I mean, I would say that that's a very valid concern, and it's certainly something we should worry about. Of course, unintended consequences, to anyone who works in policy, unintended consequences have to be pretty high up in terms of what you're thinking about when you want to implement a policy. We know that those are going to be a problem, potentially. So I guess I would say a couple of things. So the first thing I would say on this is that thinking in terms of systems will actually help us on the unintended consequences front. It's very easy to lose sight of possible consequences when you think in terms of a single institutional domain. When you think in terms of systems, it becomes a little easier to to see the possible effects that are going to stem out from that policy. So I think just changing the way we think actually would be quite helpful on that in and of itself. But the second thing I should say is that I'm not suggesting that we just go all in and kind of propose new policy with absolutely no empirical basis. I think it's, I'm a scientist, you know, I really believe in science. I think it's a good thing. We need to bring evidence to bear on these types of policies that we propose. And I think that evidence is all over the place. So we do have examples of some more radical policies. Uh, The early childhood experiments is one example. Now that's been used just as a way of saying, okay, we should just do the same thing again. But we could also use the evidence to think about interconnections among these different systems and to, as some economists have, have indeed been doing. So that's one type of evidence that you could bring to bear, existing evidence that we just think about differently. Because there's an awful lot of studies where we, we have the empirical basis for, for kind of making reasonable inferences about what might happen. The other thing, though, is that we, we kind of get on board with this idea of, of thinking up the types of policies that we could test. And again, universal basic income is a good example of this. So we have the evidence based from the negative tax experiments. But now we're getting foundations and even government support for universal basic income trials. And that's really important. But it required somebody to say, hey, we should do this. Let's try and think about this. And of course, I'm sure the immediate response would have been, well, that's going to be very expensive. You know, there's no way that NSF is going to support that. But, you know, you get the foundations on board, things push forward, things push forward, and suddenly we have a very large-scale trial in the United States of universal basic income. And bear in mind, we have a disaster intervening, a point at which, you know, a universal basic income is essentially introduced for a couple of months in the United States in order to try and keep things, you know, ticking along. And so I think we need to, to be thinking more in terms of, okay, what can we do? What can we test? And I guess, actually, I said I had two points. Let me give you a third. If you think in terms of systems, you don't have to think in terms of whole systems at once. So I gave the example of airplane building. It's not the case that in order to test if an airplane is going to work, you you kind of, you, you just try and you give it a go. You build it and then you, you let it take off. You test different system components separately. And so that would be another way of thinking about this. Again, look at the systems thinking. You can test interconnections among two or three elements and then among three or four elements. And that that gives you a good basis for thinking about how everything will interact together. 
You know, UBI is an interesting example, though, because that's one program where, despite the small field studies, I don't think it will enhance equality at all. Just because you can't, uh, my, my expectation would be once you start giving everybody in society a fixed amount of money, eventually it'll inflate that surplus, you know, payment will inflate and the prices will just go up on things and we'll be back where we started. And it's something we can't even tackle with, you know, unless we put a country on UBI for like two, three years, uh, we can't really uh, do it. But you know what? More, more broadly, I remember back in the aughts when I was in graduate school, all of the professors were heading out to some Santa Fe Institute. I think they dropped a stack of cash on the social sciences and everybody wanted some course buyouts and some free trips to Arizona. But the all very and very little tractable information that I understood came out of it. But one did. And that was sort of the diffusion of the concept of emergence in social systems. It's the idea that even though things, uh, even though we envision a complex social system as a machine, and we would assume that like the logical inputs will result in, you know, the, the consequences that one could rationally infer. When you come into contact with complex social systems, you find that stuff just the the interaction of, of, of you know a million different factors creates something in and of itself that had nothing to do with what you would have rationally inferred would happen as a result of these interventions i guess it's a very long and drawn out way of saying like you know it, it can is society so simple that we can really devise these effective interactions or these effective interventions and not run big risks like it seems like a very uh, in some way like a, a a very risky sort of approach to to reform yeah i mean society is in no way simple and and absolutely it's the case that when you have very complex systems you are going to end up potentially with these emergent properties that you had you had no idea were going to emerge and that's certainly something that we need to focus on. I mean, in part, though, I think we just need more people taking on these problems in order to try and understand the circumstances under which you get those different types of properties emerging. You know, if if, if we're not going to do that work and if we're not going to think about inequality in that way, it's, it's going to be this big black box that, you know, we never manage to unpack. So I, I think we have to be... We have to acknowledge that it's difficult, but also that it's important. And, and I would say... I want to, to really acknowledge both of those parts of it. I'm certainly not saying it's simple. Now, it is tricky, of course, in the history of radical reform when you look at what was done in the past, because that was definitely more like people winging it a bit. It's like sociologists or social scientists or politicians just saying, ah, this seems like it'll all come together well, let's give it a try. And I think there should be space for that. I mean, again, as a scientist, I would like to see us saying, let's test it on a relatively small part of the population and see what we can do. But there certainly will be things that we don't have the capacity to test on a small portion of the population. And at that, at that point, I think we have to just say, okay, we're going to try and work out the costs and benefits of each of these and try and think through the possible, you know, further consequences, the unintended consequences, and just do our best. And at some point you have to say, well, you know, are we happy with what we currently have? You know, how much economic loss is coming from that? How much pain, how much suffering, you know, all the rest of it. Because the current situation is not costless either. And so when we take into account, you know, possible unintended consequences in the future, I mean, that 
we're weighing it against something and we should be making the something explicit in just the same way as we worry about the unintended consequences. But yeah, in general, I'm not just saying, yeah, just kind of jump in there, give it a go. And in fact, the whole point of the book in a way is to say, it's not enough to kind of just say, let's do something big, let's do something radical. You actually have to be very precise about what, what it is that we need to do. But in order to get to a point where we can propose feasible radical reforms, we need to build that science. And if we don't mm. ever build that bit in the middle, we're not going to get from this very incremental policy to this, this bigger policy. And the world may change in ways that really demand it. I mean, again, just to use COVID as an example, the world has changed from what it was a year ago. People yeah. are now thinking very, very differently. And you could say the same with the protests about police violence. So, well, many people have changed how they're thinking about police violence now relative to how they thought about it a year ago and the types of reforms that may be necessary. And, you know, there has been a group of people working on that evidence base that we could draw upon. So the defund the police movement is certainly not evidence free. It's build, you know, drawing upon a wide range of evidence that says, okay, well, let's think about different ways of organizing this. We need to be there doing that science. And if we don't do that science, then politicians can't ever draw on it. And if the world changes, we don't have it ready. I'm glad you bring this up because, you know, there's a bunch of research in the in public opinion literature now that the reforms or some of the reforms that are probably, you know, you're contemplating in, in this book are pretty popular. We we can point to the rise of support for, you know, democratic socialists and other kinds of, uh, you know, sort of getting away from the rapacious kind of capitalism that is, is practiced most commonly in, in the U.S. You're bringing up the idea of you know, incarceration and and the you know efforts to reduce penalties for you know drug crimes, other kinds of crimes that people are uh, in in prisons and jails for now. The effort to end cash bail, right? The effort uh, to uh, for prison abolition, right? These are traditions in the research and the research literature, but also among activist circles. And you know those folks are sort of pushing us to think about what is possible in kind of a, a in, the, in the tradition of the radical flank, right? Um, the the groups in the civil rights movement that were pushing for black liberation instead of in addition to voting rights, right? And so I think you're right to say that we as a society have have now reconsidered a few uh, several things, right? Uh, in the midst of the ongoing um, coronavirus crisis, but also the crisis of uh, mass incarceration and really punitive policing and, and police uh, police violence in in the U.S. I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic that the trials that you're you're thinking about and the the goal of making sure that our institutions are helping support our least advantaged or our most disadvantaged young people are going to be uh, are helpful because the system now does have significant costs. But the, the recent uh, trial on UBI in, um, in Vancouver, right, where I think they gave very low-income people a relatively modest amount of money, but it, it turned out that those folks uh, tended to go and get housing. And then um, the, on the back end, there was saved more money per person than they actually spent in that intervention. So just in terms of raw return on investment, we should think about the ways that 
uh, supporting people's income, maybe in a means-tested way and maybe not, uh, would be helpful um, to to saving money on the back end. Because as you're saying, it's, sort of, it, it's all connected, right? What we spend or don't spend in early childhood education and nutrition supports and housing subsidies and things gets translated to other societal costs in terms of you know, incarceration, juvenile detention, those sorts of things. And so thinking about both sides of the ledger is, is really uh, one of the main benefits, I think, of, of this way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are two things, for example, we know about early childhood intervention. So the first is it's incredibly expensive to do it properly. The second is there's a great return on investment. And the problem is those two things are kind of in conflict if you're a present-day politician because you have to spend the money and someone else is going to get the benefit, you know, in 20, 30, 40 years' time. And so it, it's a very tricky one to sell politically, but it, it's absolutely the case that return on investment is, is usually extremely favorable when you're thinking about some of these more radical interventions. I think partly, I mean, this actually relates to, you know, how sociologists and economists often talk about inequality of opportunity. I think in sociology, we've often taken this more value-based approach, you know, it's just a wrong thing, and we, we want to try and get rid of it for that reason. Economists often think about it, of course, in terms of return on investment. They also think of it in terms of just kind of growth in a more general way. So, you know, economic growth is undermined potentially by inequality of opportunity. And so I, I think part of what we need to do actually as sociologists is try and think about that return on investment side too, you know, as a way of persuading people that this is actually a useful way of proceeding because it's very easy to dismiss a values-based argument if you don't agree with the value. But, you know, often those people may be persuaded by the return on investment argument. And I think it's probably not accidental that some of the most effective voices in favour of radical reform are economists. I mean, think of James Heckman real advocate of early childhood intervention, which is a pretty radical intervention, as I see it. And he's able to do that without being called, you know, a commie or whatever else people might call more radical social scientists. Um, and the same with, you know, Emmanuel Sayers and Gabriel Zuckman, you know, proposing very high taxes on the wealthy, which I'm sure, you know, sociologists have probably been saying this sort of thing for a long time. But people listen when it's couched in a language of return on investment and you have economists saying this stuff so part of it is actually that we need to try and think about the best ways to persuade people and, and this kind of radical flank effect that you talk about is actually pretty important i think in social science and it, it also matters who the flank is and so we might want to think carefully about you know who we can who we can draw upon in order to support these more radical ideas michelle Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. And Dan, thank you for organizing. This is awesome. Uh, happy to. Thanks, Michelle. So good to see you. It's good to see you as well. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. Thank you to Michelle Jackson from Stanford University. Her book is Manifesto for a Dream, Inequality, Constraint, and Radical Reform with Stanford University Press. And also a special thank you to Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University for organizing this. Thanks a lot, Dan. Happy to do it. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Socianex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Hanmei Cho, music by Lena Orsa. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.com.
www.dannymorrison.info. On behalf of Dan Morrison, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.